0: today's LOL pod, I am joined by my guest, LJ Lumpkin, and we talk about all kinds of stuff, from mindfulness to having difficult conversations, even potty training. Let's jump in. Hey, everyone. It's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Today, I have LJ Lumpkin with me. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a mindfulness consultant. He's also the owner of Nomad Healing Services and the author of two books, the first, Shame-Free Potty Training, A New Approach for a New Generation, and the second, Climbing Out of the Box, A Path of Healing for Black and White Americans. LJ, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, LaShonda. I feel honored to be here.
0: I, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Um I'm gonna ask you what I ask all of my guests, and that is, what is your labor of love?
1: Thank you, my my labor of love. Uh, it's it's interesting because I feel like I have a few, but the main one right now is being able to help others find a path to their authentic selves, and whatever in whatever way that might be. Mostly in this current state, it, it's a lot around stress management and being aware of how anxiety can affect the body where where we carry a lot of these traumas that have kind of haunted us from the past and then being able to actually sort through them understand them and have healthy coping skills to reduce the reactivity to these traumas and anxiety pieces
0: yeah so awesome so on, on what i hear is one helping people find a path to their authentic selves. I love the way you said it because I do believe there's always a path, but I don't believe it's always easy to find. (laughs) And as a person who has very intentionally been on a path or a journey towards authenticity for almost 10 years of just like, who in the world am I um, outside of this? I in this situation, like who at the core, a fantastic journey, but man, a journey nonetheless. And I've had some really awesome people to be with me on that. So I appreciate it. And I also hear like an emphasis on stress. I don't think there is a person in the entire globe that you can talk to right now who has not experienced a tremendous amount of stress over the last year, right? Like talking global pandemic. So um, tell us a little bit about where this work for you is rooted. Why is this important to you?
1: Yes, um, I totally agree with you. I think that's the one thing that connects us all right now is that we all have stress in some form, fashion. Um, It looks different for everyone, but we have it. And uh, for me, stress and anxiety have gone hand in hand with my success in life. Uh, I was a college athlete, so I was an athlete most of my life. That's how I got my education. And the amount of anxiety and stress that I would experience as a 20 year old uh, it was so intense that I would shut down in a lot of ways and I didn't know you know is this how life is and as I was studying psychology you know I feel very blessed to fall into the field that I loved very early on that I was able to start understanding my own responses to anxiety to stress what and what I have found is that anxiety is a physical manifestation of stress and it's usually overstressing, right? And stress can be a very healthy, positive thing in our lives because it drives us to do better. But when it becomes overwhelming, that's when we start to break down and you start to see mental health issues. And uh, early for me, I saw those things and I started to incorporate mindfulness practices to have a better understanding of what my body was going through, what my mind was going through. And that kind of led me on the path of understanding trauma uh, and specializing in working with clients with PTSD, anxiety disorders. And uh, that is really how I started navigating the world is seeing that, okay, we mostly go off of past experiences or we're so busy worrying about the future experiences that we're not in the present moment. And that's really the key to mindfulness is being able to come into the present moment.
0: That's awesome. So a few yeah. things that you said that was intriguing to me is um, that this, your interest in this started through your own journey, which I, again, I, I feel like mm-hmm. I'm, on, you know, I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't think I've talked to any clinician who hasn't said that, <laughs> you know, I don't think you just wake yeah. up one day and you're like, you know what? I don't know. Let's just work with stressed out people. Unless you have some stress, right? <laughs> so there's idea of but when you were talking about like in your twenties and being a college athlete, the thing that I think people who don't understand about the collegiate experience, whether you've been through it or whether you haven't, is to me, it is this perfect storm of, um, awareness away from what you're used to so you have awareness, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like whether you live at home and you commute to campus whether you stay close mm-hmm. to home or go to a community where there's still an awareness. then there's the fact that mm-hmm. you are somewhere between 18 and 23 24 years old and your prefrontal cortex ain't even developed the part of the right. brain that's like hey these are the consequences for that action that you're going to have, not even fully yeah. developed. Okay. So there's that. And then there's this expectation of adulthood that comes with your prefrontal cortex being fully developed, but you don't have. And to me, it's a perfect storm of like, wow. And and this is, this is what we push pretty much all of our, our young people towards. <laughs> so the right. fact that you experience tremendous stress, I mean, one of my some of my most stressful experiences happened while I was in undergrad, and so I, I totally, totally mm. get that. Um, and then there's just understanding that um, stress is not all that. I have this conversation frequently with people are like, "I want a stress-free life," and I'm like, "No, you don't, because stress woke mm. you up this morning. That right. shot of cortisol, <laughs> you know, you thought it was your alarm clock. Nope, that was stress. Right? So right. I think right. there's a lack of understanding." that people have around exactly what stress is and that stress can be it is helpful like literally it helps you wake it wakes you up it it helps you push and persevere and it can be very tolerable and a couple of elements that help things to be tolerable, stress to be tolerable is one having an anticipated ending time mm-hmm. or whatever you're going through and having a supportive community or support system in place through what you're going through so let's look at COVID-19 if shall we When's he going to mm-hmm. end? We still can't answer that question. <laughs> right. You know, right. despite the fact that we're saying, oh, vaccinations are here or we're starting to loosen restrictions, no one, not only can we not necessarily tell you when it ended, many of us can't say when it started. You know, we have mm-hmm. these like roundabouts, mm-hmm. but there was no, it started for different people at different times. So this, we don't right. know when it's going to end. That takes tolerable stress to toxic. That's when we start. Yes mental health symptoms, that's when we start realizing it's hard. And so many people were removed and disconnected from their supportive communities during this time. So a thing, stress, that can be tolerable and helpful for our growth in the absence of a few key elements can move from tolerable to toxic. And I think that's where so many people find themselves right now. So, and then mindfulness, man, right? Be right now. One of the hardest things to naturally do, because our brains are like, "Uh uh-uh, I got to remember what happened Mm -hmm. in the past, and then I got to think about the future so it doesn't happen again. So our brains don't really, it's not really our friend when it comes to mindfulness, but so since you have been working with people um, who are in chronically stressful situations, particularly over the last year, what would you say to people who still find themselves in this very stressful Uh, space during this time? Any, any things you'd give them, not that it's simple, but what would you say to them?
1: Take a big breath (laughs) because that is what we usually are not doing. And, you know, you touched on it right there where this piece of the unknown is what is mostly the biggest issue is this fear of when will this end? And if you think about the mindset is that's where we go to this horrible thing or this, uncomfortable thing we're experiencing we get into the mindset of when is this going to stop will it stop and that becomes the cycle of thinking that we go through and our physiological piece gets reactive to that and I really try to educate people on the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and if we just break those concepts down where you know we, when we're in that fight, flight, and freeze, because we have to acknowledge the freeze because that's our avoidance, that's our disassociation. When we're in those pieces, we're in that uh, sympathetic nervous system. And so we clinch up, we we lock ourselves up. And if we you know stub our toe or get in an argument with our partner in the morning and we go into every other conversation after that, in that same mindset or that same breathing pattern, we're going to be more stressed out and it's gonna feel like the whole day is consuming us. Whereas if we're in the parasympathetic nervous system and we're exhaling, right, we're, we're relaxing the body, we're in that nice digestive space where our body knows we're okay, then we aren't as reactive. And in at this time, with pandemic issues with uh, you know race ethnicity cultural socioeconomic issues we are talking about subjects where we need to not be reactive and i'm saying we as human beings need to be able to get out of the reactive state of mind. And if we haven't practiced that, and for a lot of us, we haven't because, you know, mental health has not been the, you know, the main thing we focus on in our society. And it has taken a pandemic, all these issues to happen for people to really understand what does being isolated really look like and feel like? And then now as people are starting to go back to work and be uh, around others, we have to get used to, wow, like this person has a different type of energy. And (laughs) there's a lot of things going on in the room that I didn't even notice were going on before. So for me, what I have noticed, and this is why I started the Mindful Monday process. I actually started before uh, the lockdowns and everything started happening because I genuinely, I, I genuinely love being with people when they're having that aha moment and they're understanding the, the cocktail that gets mixed up with their life and how it creates these, you know, stress issues or these uh, anxiety issues. And then being able to break that down and have the awareness of, okay, wow, I have all these things going on in my life. And I'm not even giving myself time to reflect on them. And and noticing how they're breathing. The biggest thing I I usually focus on with people is, you know, have you, are you taking a deep inhale and a deep exhale? And understanding when you take a deep inhale, it actually puts more stress on your body. It's the exhale we have to focus on. And as a runner, I learned that subconsciously, I didn't know it, but, you know, having a coach yell at you every day, you're not breathing, you're not breathing. Then you start to realize, wow, like, when I don't breathe, I'm a different person. And I noticed that again, when I, when I was done with sports and I didn't have to go to training at six in the morning, I didn't have to go running every day. I wasn't being forced to do these things that were really helpful for my mental health. Um, that's when I started to see my spiral. I saw that cocktail where it was like okay i'm, I'm self-medicating in all these other ways uh whether it's toxic relationships to- uh drinking too much maybe smoking too much all these things that could help me at points if they're very small right but they become the you know the consuming way of dealing with stress and i think we're seeing this a lot especially in the mental health field is that people were using tra- tools that were very adaptive at one point and they've become maladaptive at this point
0: right uh-huh. yeah no such good stuff um I'm like looking like there's so many things I'm gonna talk okay focus girl we can talk you. <laughs> you know like I'll die be- we could spend a whole time just talking about mindfulness and the importance of it Um, Can you tell people a little more specifically about your mindful Mondays? You know, what are they, how can people access them, you know, because they have been tremendously helpful. I think they are, again, I just look, even before I turn the volume on, I just look at you. Like, as soon as you come on, you're taking this exhale and I'm like, oh, breathe. Oh yeah. I should do that. And I know it, but sometimes we forget. So what are your mindful Mondays?
1: Yeah, so and uh, thank you for that. I love hearing the feedback because I, I never know who's listening, who's watching, right? And um, my mindful Mondays they're 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 basically video blogs for you know one to five minutes. I never go over five minutes because I know we all have busy days and attention spans are difficult, especially early in the morning. Um, and they're basically just changing the perception, just looking from a different lens for a moment and being present with okay, today we're going to be focusing on this, So let's look at this uh, this piece, whether it's, you know, what is your your, your reactive mode? What is, what is, um, what are you, what's your self-talk this week? And just noticing it. Um, because I think there's there's this perfection model that we've all been accustomed to of like, if I'm not doing it right, then I'm not, then I'm failing, right? And if you've gone into therapy, you've recognized that your therapist does a lot of reframing and it's so helpful when you have someone outside of your experience to be able to reframe a situation or to give you a different lens to look at while you're still in that panic mode and the the hard part about doing therapy is that you're either working one on one or maybe you know a group setting you can't reach as many people and so that was the dilemma that i was seeing when you know, the lockdowns first started, I was working for an agency still and doing my private practice. And I was doing these group presentations where I'm teaching about stress, anxiety, breathing techniques. And it was great because I was reaching 20 people, 30 people at a time. There's so many more people out there that I felt I wasn't able to connect with and could use small doses of, and mindfulness of uh, looking from a different lens different perspective in their day because our minds are so powerful and we will attach to the most comfortable the safest idea and usually it can be a a harming idea or a negative idea right the the negative self-talk is so it's such a big deal it's such a big piece of our day-to-day Uh, And for some of us, especially the overachievers, right, that has actually helped mold us into being better and stronger and learning from our mistakes. But in a situation where we're not having as much connection with friends or others and we feel isolated, that's what I would usually see when I was working with clients that had schizophrenia, you know, some of these more extreme, uh, issues is that it started from a seed of negativity and it just kept growing and growing. It was never checked. So being able to wake up at five, five, six in the morning after I've done my meditation and, and kind of sharing that energy that I would notice for myself, that's how I kept my sanity, uh, <laughs> Through, through grad school, through working with clients, you know, on a daily basis. Um, and then really not knowing what is coming next and being comfortable with that, being okay with sitting with the discomfort and noticing, okay, this is what what I'm feeling, this is what I'm picking up on. and And why is that, right? Where is that coming from? If we're more open to explore that, I thought maybe this can give at least someone something for a week, right? If they have something for a week, and they can actually see some tangible changes throughout their week throughout their month, right? I, I, I talk about journaling and tracking these things. And basically, what I've been implementing is the model therapy that I've kind of worked through and created with uh, a lot of my clients. And I'm just, again, planting seeds, I, I come from a farming community. So it's like, I know all about that, where it's like, hey, you got to be patient with it right? You got to just put them, water them and and step away and just be present with the discomfort of, are they going to (laughs) grow?
0: Yeah. So where can people access your uh, mindful Mondays?
1: Yes. So they can access them on LinkedIn. Uh, I have my, my site, LJ Lumpkin, the third on LinkedIn, I have posted all the mindful Mondays on YouTube, on the healing, uh, or excuse me, um, the uh, nomad healing practices so it's just nomad healing practices on youtube and so there's over 56 i believe episodes and also they are on instagram under lj underscore the underscore nomad
0: okay so we'll have all of that um in the show notes but i just want people to know that like you can access this. I also need you to actually say to me that I don't have to do this at five or six in the morning. Can you tell me that out loud?
1: Yes, you do not have to do this at five or six in the morning.
0: Okay. You know,
1: <laughs> I got
0: activated when you said that I had to take a deep exhale because I'm like I can be mindful just not that early. I'm still sick right.
1: <laughs> right. And that and that's and that's I, I that's my own practice of okay I it, you know because I think a lot of people get stuck in well when am I going to do this? when am I going to be able to do mindfulness? And that's where the mindfulness consulting piece comes in because I, I speak with other companies and uh, I do talks about this so they can understand that it doesn't mean you got to shave your head, sit on a pillow and meditate. Because I think that that's the scary thing about meditation is that people think they're doing it wrong, that it only comes in one form. And so through incorporating mindfulness throughout the day, you're able to get into a meditative state. Of and that's really what we're trying to achieve with all these, you know, philosophical, you know, talks. And and how do you do that when you have two screaming children, you have to get to work on time, or you have to figure out what you're making for dinner. And, and it can be the simplest process of, okay, right now I'm just washing dishes, and I am going to have all these dishes clean. so I'm going to be active in the process of doing it is so much of our day gets hijacked where we're doing multiple things, the multitasking piece. And so if we can get back into that layer of like, okay, can I give 100% to whatever I'm doing right now? Um, for me, it is waking up that early morning because I have not ever been a morning person, but for some reason I still smile now because I've, <laughs> I've let it seep in now. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is what my experience is here and now. And if I start my day like that, then all of a sudden it's so much easier to deal with whatever bumps come in the road. Uh, I like to think of them as just hurdles. They're not brick walls, they're hurdles. And, you know, I was a hurdler. And so when I hear people say jumping over hurdles, it, it triggers me because you don't jump over a hurdle. You take a bigger step. That's all mm. you're doing. And so that that small reframe of, hey, we're not, you don't have to do so much. You're just taking a bigger step, right? A bigger step forward. Then all of a sudden it becomes tangible and it's a goal that can be achieved versus something that's so
0: impossible, right? That was an excellent reframe. Cause listen, <laughs> I, I was a field girl, shot and disc, and I watched hurdles. <laughs> it sure <laughs> as heck looked like a jump to me. But as soon as you say it, I'm like, no, you're right, right? And and it was it was something about the the way that it happened in stride. Mm-hmm. For me, it was the in-strideness that I watched hurdlers. Um that again, it was a pacing, but it was just another step and so much, you know, mindfulness, I think on one hand, people are still never hearing of it. And then there is this like scary thing for some people like, Ooh, that's that. No, no. What it is, is literally feeling for me, the carpet underneath my feet right now. Mm -hmm. And just noticing that like my feet are on carpet and that I can actually feel it. It has a texture that I would normally not notice because too much is going on, right? right? It's noticing what what it feels like to have my body connected to the chair I'm sitting on,
1: mm-hmm. that I'm
0: actually sitting and that there is a, a texture beneath me and that's there. And that the temperature where I am right now is a certain thing and that I feel that and that when I inhale through my nose, like I can feel that. My mm-hmm. nostrils feel that when I exhale, I can feel breath leaving my slightly parted lips. Y'all, that's mindfulness. It is being mindful of what is happening absolutely right now. Mm-hmm. And we get so far from that. As a matter of fact, when you said multitasking, um, it doesn't exist. We're uh, gonna we going to we going to I look, keep using the word, it's fine, but I really gotta tell it. it, it does not exist. You just shift your focus from one thing to the other. People think multitasking is giving 100% to multiple things. Well, that, that's just not possible. Right. And you're going to split it somewhere. So when people are multitasking, know that every task you add, you take away your capacity to be involved in what other, other tasks you're already doing. And relationships, I believe, are suffering so much from this idea, this myth, of multitasking. Mm-hmm. It's when we really think, and 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 let me, like, this is an indictment, this is everyone, right? Mm-hmm. How many people had to simultaneously become a parent who was at home with their child while helping the child learn while still doing their work and still maintaining a home? Like, we didn't choose many of these things, but we, we went into it, I think, from a perspective of, I'm gonna be able to do all these things, listen. Mm-hmm. Once we just for a second, just be like, you know what, for the next 10 minutes, this is the one thing that I'm going to do. We start to recognize like, oh, and then I did it. Oh, and then I can move on to something else. And, you know, I'm listening. I'm listening. When people say that to me. No, these are usually in like not professional capacities. But I'm listening. I'm like, if you were listening, I wouldn't stop talking. No, you're you're on your phone. You're you're doing all of these different things. You're not listening. So I'm not upset, but I'd rather wait because I'm gonna have to. You're either gonna miss something or I'm gonna have to repeat myself. So you might think you're. I'm gonna save my time. I'm gonna wait until you actually mm-hmm. <laughs> ready to listen. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah is such instrumental stuff so let's let this segue we talk about mindfulness and trauma and we talk about relationships let's talk a little bit about climbing outside the box um, or climbing out of the Mm. box (laughs) which is um your latest out of the box um that I find so fascinating and I I really want people to be able to hear about it so tell us about your your most recent book
1: Yes, so uh, it's climbing out of the box, a path of healing for Black and White America, and uh, this this has been this has been a healing tough book to, to to work on. I've been working on it with my my colleague Anne Sterling Hastings, and she's written several books on shame, uh, and has really helped me and pushed me in a lot of different ways to explore my own experience of having these conversations around race, um, culture, ethnicity. Um, as someone who is, is Black, Mexican, Irish, Native American, I'm, I'm a big mix, um, I have always been put in boxes. And, um, you know, wherever I walk, I oh, this is a Black man, or this is you know, this is a Mexican man, or, you know, or this is just a man, right? Like, that we all have so many boxes that we're put into, and it disconnects us from who we authentically are. And what I wanted to capture in this book is these conversations that we're starting to have um, are so important around race, ethnicity, and there's this traumatic thing that's happened, like racism is trauma. And, once we understand that, that it is something that causes us to react, we continue to do the same cycle over and over again, that if we can start to understand our own processes, our own cycles, then we can start to make changes. And I do this in the book where I talk about different experiences in my life um, that a lot of people, I think, didn't really know what was going on in my mind. Uh, I've become again as a therapist you learn to be able to notice what are your feelings and what are everyone else's feelings Mm -hmm. and I think we do that before we become therapists Um, it's just we're drawn to that field because we've had to practice it and um, seeing you know covert racism overt racism being able to have the conversations around them I've been in the place where I've I, my emotions have been so hijacked where I'm in this emotional state of mind and it comes out in rage or anger because that was the only thing I was allowed to feel and to express as a man, as black man, um, as Mexican man, right. That's, that's what we're allowed to do culturally. And as I was able to dissect why I do them and what, you know, where does this all come from? It's been easier to have a conversation where my emotions can be removed and, um, You know, during this last year, I've also been uh, a professor at, um, excuse me, um, an associate professor at uh, Pepperdine University, where I was teaching uh, clinicians, future clinicians, uh, multicultural psychology and, uh, and uh, practicum. And this is during the time of, uh, you know, George Floyd and, you know, Aubrey, all these, all these people, uh, we're looking at these situations that were happening, right, these things that were happening in real time and the reactivity that happens on, you know, with everyone, not just the black community, but white community, uh, Asian community, everyone, like, Hispanic community, everyone was having to deal with these issues. And so knowing that, okay, we have to be able to have these conversations and understand what our feelings are about them, and then also being able to respect what someone else's perspective is, whatever their feelings are. And That can be very difficult when it, it it's it's the opposite of how we feel about things, um, and, and so in this book, I'm mapping out, one, the process that I have gone on myself. Um, I call it uh, cycle processing. Uh, it's kind of my model of therapy uh, and understanding the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of our emotions uh, when we are more proactive, when we're more lethargic. And, and instead of looking at them as a shame piece, but really understanding, you know, the individual self, okay, at six in the morning, I'm not that awake, but at 12, I am actually more productive and more creative. When we stop shaming ourselves of who we are, then all of a sudden we can have these real authentic conversations because when we walk in those rooms, we know that we're feeling good or we feel in tune with who we are. So whatever emotions or feelings are buzzing around in that room, we can address them more organically because we're not holding the shame that's been passed down for generation to generation. I I, I do see that, you know, especially for black community is that we have learned that our voices are very powerful we have learned that we can fight but we've never learned how to heal and i've seen that through generations when i talk with my grandparents when i talk with you know other people that that that's the process that we really have not been able to enjoy and indulge in and especially as a therapist knowing that you know there is a taboo around going to therapy and talking outside of the family system, but talking to a neutral party. And so I'm exploring that. You know, this is actually how I've done my healing work: is talking outside of my family system and being able to um, really do the self reflection work. And um, now I'm not as triggered. Uh, I can I can have these conversations where, yeah, it's like I don't agree with a person, but I can I can still I can present where I'm coming from and the message can be heard. And I think that's the most important piece is when we don't feel heard, we don't feel validated. And we have to go about a different way of feeling heard. And it usually starts with just like what you were saying is we have to be listening. And how do we do that when we are in a trauma response? And so a lot of that is within the book. (laughs)
0: can't wait to get the book Um, you're speaking my language totally right Um, and in racism is trauma it's trauma for everyone it's not just trauma for the black or african-american person or the asian or asian american it is trauma for everyone Mm -hmm. so much of what you were saying resonated i mean not only do we have our life experiences that you know i view trauma not as an event or a series of events, but how our body responds and then the mm-hmm. beliefs and worldviews and behavioral patterns that emerge because an event happened. Yes. And when you think of it that way, people stop looking for that thing. So the number mm-hmm. of people who tell me, oh, I, I don't have trauma because I've never been abused and neglected that and it's like, but what did you absorb mm-hmm. growing up that led to beliefs, worldviews and behaviors that you are still enacting right now to past situations. But then on top of that, we have to understand that there is an intergenerational and historical trauma that gets passed down epigenetically, which literally how our genes are expressed. It gets passed down to us and we live it out. So as you were talking, and I talk about it all the time, the shame, 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 shame is such a huge factor. And trauma and trauma recovery and all of those things. But I began to think, you know, the, the, what happens here, dot, dot, dot stays here. What happens in this house? Don't go out there telling our business. And as much as I have looked at that and be like, man, it's so not helpful. My mind goes back to my ancestors who were enslaved in this country, mm-hmm. you know, the underground where you don't go out telling people about that. You could bust up the whole system, right? Running your mouth. You don't talk about it. You don't, you know, we have these resources. We found the way you don't tell people about that. You know, and and that was needed for survival then, but it's continued to pass down. And in some ways it's still needed. And so when we can understand, that's one of the biggest things I hear you saying, LJ. It's just like with an understanding of how our body is responding and the why our bodies are responding, there is a tremendous amount of healing that takes place there. When Mm -hmm. I'm working with clients or whomever I'm working with, it's like once you understand that your body's not trying to harm you, it is actually trying to help you. That Mm -hmm. reaction that you have is your body's best attempt to keep you alive, keep you safe, help you avoid pain. The thing is, it's missing data. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have all the information it needs. So if we can start to give it the information it needs, it will stop responding the way it was. Sometimes the most impactful information you can give it is a deep breath. Yes. That inhale, it's data it literally as you give that long exhale what you are communicating is oh we don't have to fight we don't have to fight or run or freeze right now that mm-hmm. is literally what your exhale is saying it com- it's a note you're passing mm-hmm. notes to your central nervous system hey i know we heard that sound but i'm giving you data we don't have to run right hey i know you heard that loud noise hey, we don't have to fight nobody. I just wanted to let you know. And we get this intellectually Mm -hmm. because we do it with people we're in relationship with, right? If you've ever been, um, so think about like people you are friends with. If you've ever had friends who weren't friends together, but they were friends with you. And you're like, you know what? I'm gonna get my friends together. We're gonna go, we're gonna go out, have a drink. And so you're there. You're the only thing that connects Mm -hmm. these two people. And you have like inside jokes, with each of them that the other isn't privy to Mm -hmm. so you're you're sitting there y'all having drinks everything is cool they're both a little skeptical of Mm -hmm. each other Mm -hmm. why because I don't know you there's an unknown there I know I can be my full self with this person but I don't know you like that and and they say something that's like an inside joke Mm -hmm. right but one of the friends is like hold on what you mean and the friend who brought y'all together say hey hey it's cool it's cool that's just how That's just how we, you know, that's just how we talk. And then the other one say, no, 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 no. That's our thing. Many of us have played the middle person before. Mm -hmm. I mean, hey, 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 I I know, I know you. And to (sighs) you, that probably sounded offended, offensive. But no, this is how we get to do that to the various parts of our bodies because they're all jumping to our defense. They all are activating to make sure we're going to be okay. So our breathing our mindfulness the self talk we have or all these communications to be like hey i feel you i know you i know you want to just get up and leave right now but we're we're good that's actually okay good. once we start to understand that we take the relationship with our body a lot more seriously it's not just a thing that we clothe and make look good and no it's something that we actually realize like all relationships that we have to continue to grow with it we have to continue to know it. We have to continue to take care of it and nurture it and that that's a game changer. So as mm. we are talking about that, going into these conversations, very necessary conversations but also very tough conversation. Imagine how much your body gets ready. Part of your body is getting ready to be like, yo, if it break out, we going to run. <laughs> Another part is like, hey, I'm coming in swinging. Another part is yes. like, yo, we gonna stand real still and act like we don't even exist. And maybe they won't even notice we're here. Right, right. <laughs> so all of this is happening, talking about the collective trauma of racism. And I, I just think it's so imperative that people understand um, that when all that is happening in your body, your brain will reach for the most convenient narrative. Mm-hmm. And the most convenient narrative is the one that's most accessible. Sometimes it's the one we've been given all the time. And it's usually attached to the person we're talking to. Mm -hmm. So your body gets all activated. And then your brain is like, whoa, why is this happening? It must be them. So then we stop having conversations because we can't talk to them. Mm -hmm. We can't talk to them. And it's like, it's actually not about them per se. Your body is just preparing itself. And so the fact that you have this book, to help people walk through that processing is awesome. And that you have such rich intersectionality Mm -hmm. that lends to so many perspectives. I think it's awesome. When people read your book, what do you want them to take away? They're gonna close that last flap Mm -hmm. and you're gonna, and you want them to have what, think what, feel what, once Mm -hmm. they've closed your book. Mm,
1: yeah. Oh, you gave me chills thinking about that. That's uh curiosity is what I want them to have. I I think that, that is a distinct message throughout the book, is that what has helped me get past that response, that fight, flight, freeze response, and, and engage in these conversations and, and really have beautiful relationships with people from all different walks of life is is that attachment to curiosity. And it's really, I think, when we get out of the survival mode, we get into the thriving mode. And if you think of it like a small child, like asking a million questions that might be bugging you right now, right? They're not doing it to bug you, they're curious and they wanna know. And there's an excitement that comes with curiosity, which excitement can seem like anxiety. And for a lot of us, we just override it to it's anxiety. But if we can remain curious and and get excited about that, like it's a treasure hunt again, and wow, I get to find out about all this stuff I didn't know about, right? Then all of a sudden we're more proactive in engaging in those conversations and starting up this random conversation with the person sitting next to you. Um, There's an openness there. And then all of a sudden we create a space that's inviting for other people to come in and want to be able to hear and listen. And so that is really what I want people to take away from this book is remain curious. Don't get into that state of judgment, because again, the assumptions, the beliefs of the past, you are not that same person that you had that past experience, you are not your parents, your grandparents, all those people that went through all those things. Yes your body this beautiful nervous system that's there you have this protective layer that that helps keep your consciousness here and intact but again it's a flesh suit right like we have to be aware that it is just telling you a lot of things it's information that discomfort is information it is not good or bad it just is and so when we can be in that state of being then all of a sudden these things that seem so impossible right like you know to be able to be accepting of everyone is something that's so impossible, it becomes possible. And, and I've seen this happen in, in smaller circles, but even in bigger scale. I see companies now that are using more inclusion models. And, and yes, there's going to be people that pander to like, okay, we need to incorporate inclusion. But I do see people really doing the work behind that of, no, how do we get everybody working together? Because we actually are more productive that way as a society, as a community, we have more output when we are working together, when we see common goals, common interests, like that's that's shown time and time again, but it's when we get back into that state of survival, where all of a sudden we're in this us versus them mentality. And then we can't share information. We can't connect with those people. They're different, right? And, and so I just really want people to be open to going into that state of curiosity and leaning into it. It doesn't mean going and having, you know, the first conversation so what is it like to be black, you know, like but being able to be mindful and notice, oh wow, like I'm noticing that time when my dad said this group of people is like this and how much of an effect that had on everything. It, it that ripple effect it sends through, you know, our own perspective. And and being curious can i let go of that can i can i meet this person for who they are and they let them tell me who they are through their actions their conversation rather than putting this box on them and and keeping them there
0: man i know i'm just looking at the time like oh there's more ah, we can talk forever i love it <laughs> love it, love it. Um, i talk about curiosity and compassion coupled together all the time When we can just truly, I have adopted my favorite phrase now. And it's, I wonder, Mm -hmm. I wonder, Mm -hmm. I don't have to have an answer. And that's a new thing that I have to remind myself of because that I didn't, that's, that's the, really, I feel like the opposite of what I absorbed growing up. Always have an answer. I don't have to have an answer. I can just be curious. And when you mentioned that our curiosity can lead to excitement, but it, it can manifest like anxiety, mm-hmm. that's that convenient narrative mm-hmm. because they both can cause an elevation in heart rate. They mm-hmm. both can cause us to like start sweating. They both yeah. make it difficult to hold our body still. And so when we are so stress and anxiety prone, anything that feels like it, the brain is like, oh, this is a no brainer, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And, and really our brain takes shortcuts all the time. Yeah. It's what it does. And so mm-hmm. anything that is easy and convenient is just going to come up with it. But when we go, wait a minute, I'm going to breathe this out. And I wonder, mm-hmm. then we we come away with all of these different conclusions, um, mm-hmm. or at least questions mm-hmm. that yeah. are beautiful and the understanding for all of us, but especially those who have been, uh, who are connected and are, have marginalized identities is there is absolutely no shame for what our ancestors had to do to survive. And Mm -hmm. we are the manifestation of their survival. So there is a gratitude that is owed Mm -hmm. to our ancestors. And we live in different times. Don't get me wrong. I understand systems of oppression and I understand they're still here but we get to thrive in a way that our ancestors literally could not. Mm -hmm. And in ways, I feel that it is offensive to our ancestors when we don't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we can think about seven generations back and we are sitting in modern times talking with our ancestors and they like you're not maximizing the capacity and potential you have. You don't have to do the same thing I had to do because this is different. Like, how dare you? <laughs> how yeah. did I went through all of that so you could get here and still do the same thing I did when it's a totally different circumstance? You mean to tell me that you can stand up and take a deep breath and say I'll come back to this conversation without death? And yet right. you still holding it all in or running a am- month. Like, I, I do think that they would be genuinely appalled mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> that yeah. we are not utilizing the freedoms that many of them fought and died for right. so that we could engage with the world differently. Yes. So that our children in seven generations forward don't have to do the same things we're doing right now. And I right. think we owe that to our ancestors. And I truly believe that being curious about our experience and what's happening in our body, being mindful right now, being able to understand our body and know that the data it's giving us is just so that we can continue to move forward, not get stuck. You know, I, I feel like in some ways it's the least that we can do. And yes. so I am so grateful for your book that you're com- that's coming out so that people um, can follow this journey of curiosity and mindfulness and so I want to talk about the first book yes. that you have um shame free potty training um, a new approach for a new generation and again this could be a whole separate podcast <laughs> but <laughs> uh tell us a little bit about that because we are on the tell end. Yes. Of potty training with our girls, we're on the whole pull up at night, yeah. you know, celebrate when they're dry, yeah. acknowledge that, hey, oh yeah. it happened you know this whole thing. so tell us about the book and and why you wrote it.
1: yes, yeah. so um I was blessed to be the the uh, primary at home uh, my wife and I we have an amazing relationship where um while I was working on my licensing, I was taking care of the kids a little bit more, and when it it came to potty training i started thinking about that where a lot of my clients that was a big issue for them within the household when do we do it how do we do it and oh they you know they're still peeing in the bed and it seems like we're taking 10 steps backwards and with my kids both of them i was able to train them by about you know like with, by 2 you know they were both 2 by the time and and of course there were still accidents there were still things that happened but a lot of it was training my own temperament, you know, noticing what, are my, what am I expecting from them? And and for a lot of us, when we're, we get thrown into being parents, right? We don't realize, oh yeah, we've had, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of experience going and sitting on the toilet, <laughs> you know, just basic, right? And they are just learning this concept. And so looking at what, you know, what is our temperament when we're going into this? Are we, are we punishing them? Are we shaming them? Because that's our parenting style from, from beginning to end, right? Is if we start out in a way that it's, it's shaming them to do things. Yeah. They might do it, but then all of a sudden they are doing things. So they won't be shamed. Right. And they're in this external motivation pattern versus internal motivation. Um, And so what I talk about in the book is kind of mapping out my journey with my kids, certain tools that really helped, you know, when it came to getting them on the potty, you know, language around it, not using like, you know, oh, you need to go tink, tink or anything, but just saying like, oh, you have to poop or pee, like normalizing the language. Um, And if we start that with (laughs) with the simple stuff there, um, and even like, you know, okay, putting rubber sheets on the bed. Get rubber sheets so if there's an accident all right I just take it off yeah it, it it adds on to my day and and the mindfulness that it takes in there's like this is why i'm upset is because i have to go and do one more thing that i was not expecting to do it's not because i'm that mad at them they have they don't have control over that yet and they're learning it right and um and then you know mapping out patterns and and, and celebrating um these were the things that I, I felt it was important to start with. And um, one, to get a little bit of credibility because you know if, if you're gonna take advice from somebody, you wanna know the methods work. And I think that is such a critical time for parents is that you're, you're sleep deprived, you're trying to work, you're trying to do so many different things. If, if one thing could be a little bit easier, then you might be more in line to take some advice from this guy that's talking about potty training. And, and so it really was um, a first attempt of just saying like, okay, can I put something out there that can be helpful to the world and, and, and cross those race cultural lines? Because again, we all experience these issues mm-hmm. when it comes to our kids. And I think that for this next generation, if we come together as a community really to, to, help, mo- to help them live a shame-free life, and they're actually driven to, to do things for the betterment of humanity because internally it feels good versus it being, I have to do this or it's important for me to, to help others because if I don't, then I'm selfish, right? But if we just start that in the early stages of parenting, we'll start to see that unravel where they're just like, they're motivated by their own intentions. And that's when you think about it for parents, that's that's what we want. We want these these active children to go out in the world and be able to make it a better place and thrive in what they're doing. And so if we, uh, that was my intention for the book. because I was spending so much time with, with them. And I, I really looked at it. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of parenting books that I was seeing, especially for males that were taking on the mantle of being the stay at home mm-hmm. parent. Um, and, you know, I had to go through my own little pieces of shame and judgment Um, that no one really put on me, but they were just internalized for so long, like, this is what a man is, this is what, you know, you're supposed to do in this, this situation, and so it was kind of this cathartic experience to be able to write about it, and I'm a big advocate of journaling, so I was already writing a lot of this stuff down, and I was like, okay, well, what worked? What, if I was going back, what would have been helpful in this situation? Um, And I put some of my own personal experiences um, with running into other people in awkward situations, um, just so people know that, yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to be perfect. And we don't need to set up our kids for failure by creating a perfect system. It's like, Mm -hmm. there will be falls, there will be, you know, back steps, but it's all good. Like we all are going through this stuff. Um, So normalizing the process and, and really getting away from the shame piece.
0: That's so awesome. You know, potty training, I think, is a whole, whole conversation in and of itself. You know, when you were saying, like, you know, and that's what we want as parents. And I'm like, yeah, but there are so many parents who've never had it. They don't even, that idea of, like, free thinking that what? No, so many of us are passing. So our generational and intergenerational trauma gets embedded in parenting styles. Yes, we would never say, like, I'm traumatizing my kid. I think there are not a lot of parents who would go like, oh, yeah, I want to traumatize my kid, but we're doing the same things that traumatized us, and oh, mm-hmm. my goodness, I, I and I'm glad a lot of people don't say it to me directly, but when they go through the whole, and I'm fine, nah, are you? I mean, okay. no this. I mean, am I? It's It's not you. No, we're not. We're not fine, right? right? And so- when we pass down this whole this, this generational thing that of shame, we don't recognize we're doing it, but it's so damaging. The amount mm-hmm. of time we had to go back to these early shame moments with clients who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60's, 70s, mm-hmm. all the way to these moments. So that's one thing. Another thing is, with potty training, so often I recognize it ain't even about the kid. Mm -hmm. It's about the parent who like, how old is my child? I'm out here looking like I can't. It starts to be about you. You, you, The kid is an afterthought Mm -hmm. because so many of us have had to perform to get our value. We've had to achieve to feel love that Mm -hmm. our children become an extension of our achievement and performance. Mm -hmm. And so if your child ain't, you know, doing this. And, and, you know, by this time, then it's an indictment on you. So we push, push, push. And then sometimes we go through the fear and intimidation tactics because, yeah, they work in the moment. Mm-hmm. We don't understand the long lasting impact. So that's it. Another thing is for the kids, I think we need to put some respect on what potty training is. So I say this all the time. What is potty training when I'm doing a training? What is potty training? And inevitably, somebody is going to give me a BS simplified answer. Teaching the kid how to go to the bathroom on the toilet. Wrong. Okay, let me tell you what potty training is. Potty training is taking a pre-verbal entity, human, who has a limited capacity to tell you what they're experiencing, helping them to feel a sensation in their body separate and differentiate that sensation from every other sensation that's happening in their body, recognize the sensation, move towards a certain place, perform certain tasks all before a part of their brain, they do not control releases their batter, bladder or bowels. That's potty training. Yes. <laughs> so I don't want to hear nobody talk about going to the bathroom on the toilet. It is not that simple. And right. because we have practiced. hmm doing it we start to think like oh people have far more patience with walking when a when a toddler's learning to walk there's this like oh oh my god they're standing there's like this quiet there's the support and what do we do when a child who's learning to walk falls yay we cheer when they fall yes why because it's a it's an because if they fail, they must have been standing. They must have been trying. Then we get less than a year later, almost, and mm-hmm. we're in potty training. And when their proverbial fall comes, what do we do? We No, you didn't yell at them, but your face was loud enough. Mm-hmm. Yep, your right. silence spoke volumes. Mm-hmm. Your retreat from them said a lot. That conversation you were having over the phone with somebody you didn't think they heard, they internalize all of them. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so yes. when we start putting these adult expectations on children, mostly because we' looking at somebody else as highlight real, mm-hmm. it just it wreaks such havoc on that child. Now you want to talk about trauma? Why is it trauma? Because beliefs about themselves happen in that yes. child at that moment. whether they're a failure, whether they have capacity, whether they are worthy of love and acceptance. And then they have worldviews that develop from those. If I'm not doing it right, the first time I must be doing it wrong. And then they develop behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. They become risk avoidant because if I fail, it's not good. All of these different things. And then they grow up. Right. And they right. start working in businesses and teaching school. And next thing you know, you think we a whole world of well adjusted adults wrong. And LJ and I will be out of work. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right, right? And it's not an indictment, but it's the curiosity and the realities that so much of our wounding happens yeah. so early around things like potty training that we don't have a cognitive autobiographical memory of what was said to us and the faces that were made and the shame we felt but it lives in our body oh yeah oh, and yeah. then it rises up
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then we get ready to have a conversation about race and this thing over here about potty training rises up and our <laughs> brain reaches for a convenient narrative it's all connected y'all yeah. it's so connected Yes, yes.
1: I I love how you map that out. Because I mean, that explanation, we again, we never go into the deeper details of it. And so being able to, it's like, oh, this is why these therapists are talking about all this. (laughs) Because, because you start to see, oh, wow, this is this is our foundation. This is what we've been built on, you know? And if we're in a shaming culture, then we're gonna to continue to do that because we don't know anything else. And I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm definitely not a saint. And I notice moments where I, where I get in that mode of like, you know, you need to you need to be tougher. This world is tough, you know? And, and there's a protective layer there where it's like, you know, like the thing, we think about the things we had to deal with and we wanna protect our kids from. And the understand that we really can't protect them. We can prepare them and the best preparation is for them to have that self-confidence and to be able to speak to their needs and 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 are we creating a system where those needs are being heard um and, and so i you mapped it out beautifully and, and so I, I really appreciate that because when we were working on the book even and i worked on this with ann as well we were talking about it, i said okay it's a potty trading book And when we're working on it, she's like, this is so much more than just potty training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we start to really look at these deep, deep sea things. And that was my intention was if I could get, you know, someone to read a really small and it's not, you know, it's not like a huge book. It's very small. And, you know, because I know parents, we we don't have a lot of time. (laughs) And, and just look at that, we might be a little bit more open to actually seeking out therapy when we're burning out as parents or when we're needing to just say some of the negative stuff that we're feeling but get it out of the system so the child doesn't have to experience it because the shortness of breath or that tension that's in the room they if they grow up in that environment that's what they think love is that's what they think relationships are and they go back into those types of toxic systems even if it's just moments that we had with them if we're not able to explore those moments or acknowledge them as adults like hey you know, daddy actually lost his temper there and that wasn't okay. And I, you know, I want you to know where that was coming from, right? If we can clarify some of those things so they don't create a storyline of I am bad or I I don't deserve this love or I will always fail, right? Because as a therapist, you know, we get to hear the bad, you know, wh- how these things build up down the road. Um, so okay. that was, yeah, wow. That was a big intention of that book.
0: And it's not too late so often I get people, my kids are grown and I And it's not too late. It's mainly not too late because you still got little kids living inside of you mm-hmm. that need attention. Heal yourself. Those in relationship with you will benefit from that healing. And with our kids, you know, I really, as a parent, and I, I want to encourage us so much. We have to stop preparing our kids for their future by preparing them for our past Mm -hmm. we say we preparing them for their future but really we're just equipping them with all the things we have to do to survive and what we do is we unintentionally put them on a path to recreate the same circumstances that we went through yes and we have to as adults and and parents understand that we don't have to have all the answers but if we're curious they learn to be curious Mm -hmm that we can walk with them on the journey and develop skills alongside them instead of feeling like we got to give them the answer. Because sometimes we give them the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. And when our answer doesn't fit their circumstance, then they feel shame. Like there's something with them. And it's because we were so stuck in our own survival and well-intentioned, but still off-base often. And so it was never too late for us to move into these spaces of healing self so that those around us can know that healing is even a thing Mm -hmm. and so lj well i feel like we could totally talk for five more hours and i'll have (laughs) to have you back and um for us just to keep digging in these things i definitely know that you've said some things that are intriguing to listeners so if people want to reach out uh get in touch with you or find you how can they do that
1: Yes, yeah, so they can go to www.nomadhealingpractices.com, um, and that's my website, and it has a lot of my information. They can also go to LinkedIn and look at LJ Lumpkin, the third, and, and it's just I, 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 <laughs> then, and also at uh, Instagram, LJ underscore the underscore nomad. And through all those different uh, areas, I do consulting as well. So they can reach out through the uh, website and yeah, those are, oh, and also uh, Mindful Mondays are all on Nomad Healing Practices, uh, the YouTube page.
0: That's awesome. So we will definitely have all of that information in the show notes and LJ, I like to round out all of my podcasts by asking my guests to share a little known interesting or fun fact about themselves.
1: Yes, so I was thinking about that. I know from Ohio. I am a huge huge Dave Chappelle fan. Mm. And and I know people might think, "Oh, well yeah, Dave Chappelle's funny, but I am a a fan of who he is as a human being and the what he's created." Um when I was in high school, that's when the Chappelle show was on and I really got to witness how he was creating these spaces to have these very difficult conversations through humor and it freed me again to get out of my own box and to be able to speak to things that people um, that were outside of black culture would not have even addressed and so um, that's something I love being able to connect with others in humor. And I think Dave Chappelle was a big piece of my growth in that and being able to laugh in situations that were uncomfortable, but then also bring it back to talking about that uncomfortability. Uh,
0: Thank you. And so we're, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes, an hour away from where he lives. So, you know, I've never ran into him, but...
1: You might be listening, Uh, though. You know,
0: maybe. That would be great. Hey, (laughs) tell your friends, Dave. Tell your friends. (laughs) LJ, thank you so much um, for taking the time out just to tell us about the things you have going on and have this very rich and awesome conversation. I'm sure we'll connect in so many other ways. I just want to thank you for being my guest.
1: Thank you so much, LaShonda. It it was a real honor and privilege to be here and I love everything you're doing. So um, getting to connect with you again, I look forward to the next time we connect as well.
0: Me too. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sug of Instant Classic Media, and of course, to you, my guest. I never take it for granted that you tune in and listen. If you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out at the website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. If you haven't, head over to Instagram. We have a new Instagram page specifically for the podcast the underscore lol underscore pod and of course if you have not already go ahead and give us that five-star rating write us that wonderful review and share with your family and loved ones until we connect again you all be well